0: wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning,
1: good morning. Coach Hog. here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave this morning. In the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country in the Melon Law Studio protected by... Crime prevention, 24 uh, a 65. Let me see what's going on here in terms of uh, maybe catching the shoe myself here before we start off. I'll get to that in a minute. Well, i going to start off with Coach Hog Locker Room here and hopefully see myself here on the screen in a moment. Um, I'm going to update UF basketball. I don't know what else to say about it, but um, put it uh, benevolently, I guess, um, nicely, it's a work in progress. And uh, work in progress means wait till next year uh, to some people, And to other people, it means, well, you get one more year or you get two more years." So I'm hearing all these conversations. And you know, it's, it's a, you, you got to say it's a relevant conversation because the nature of the sport. There is so much money in sports now, and there's so much attention uh, that if you make a wrong decision, you start losing money, you start losing fans. And it's like cattle. If they start losing weight, it's very hard to put it back on them. Uh, If you start losing games, it's very hard to uh, regain your uh, reputation and start attracting top players. It's just uh, the nature of the competitiveness now with all the television and name, image, and likeness and the uh, the transfer portal. uh, And I got to tell you that the leagues are so competitive. You take a look at something that's up and coming, for example – And that is women's basketball. Women's basketball is starting to draw in a lot of gymnasiums around uh, the country where previously they didn't, big crowds, uh, raucous crowds. Much of this is being led by the success of South Carolina's women's basketball team, which is number one in the nation. Just played a thriller with UConn on television uh, yesterday, down to the wire. UConn has been University of Connecticut has been the perennial power forever. Um, And now you've got a team in the Southeastern Conference of all places, in South Carolina of all places, um, really drawing big crowds and attention and great players. A six, seven person on that team, uh, where do they come from? My golly, you always wonder. But these female athletes on the basketball court are getting to be uh, pretty darn classy and exciting to watch. Along comes a um, University of Florida, which is struggling to rebuild its reputation for a girls' basketball team that's competitive. I think the last time we really had one here was with Carol Ross, and now we've got Kelly Ray Finley, who is a nice coach, a good coach. And now the word is out, maybe a little bit too nice. Uh, maybe should be a little bit more uh, hard, more, more harder on her players and yell a little more and all that. Uh, I'm going to let the fans make up their minds on that. It does seem that basketball does invite and encourage and uh, show you quite frequently some of the um, most um, outlandish characters walking up and down the side of the court, encouraging their team. Uh, The fellow from Tennessee comes to mind. Uh, Even our new coach, Golden, is also involved emotionally in charging the referees and asking for why they ruled what they did. Of that sort of business is really um, going on on all the sidelines. So Bobby Knight used to be the classic for that. The gentleman on the side was uh, Mr. Wooten, of course, out of UCLA. So there are all kinds of people who uh, know how to get it done. So there are a lot of opinions beginning to float around now about UF girls basketball and how much longer can you wait when you get beat by 30 points by Ole Miss. You know, to their credit, to University of Florida's credit, they had to fly by plane, take bus, get there at the last minute. There's a lot of that that drags on, uh, but that's not an excuse. So uh, let me report to you that girls basketball is, it's it's, uh, being looked at. And I think, you know, it can go another year. And then you're going to start hearing, well, maybe we need to try something different. And when you hear something, try something different. It's usually try coaching changes. Uh, You see how impatient we were with men's basketball. We took the men's basketball coach, and now that basketball coach, Mr. White, is over at Georgia. And now we have the current basketball coach who seems to know what he's doing but is losing. And bottom line about basketball, it's a very simple sport. The ball must go through the hole. Now, how you get it through the hole is anybody's opinion about how to proceed with that. You can run and gun. You can set up and shoot threes. Uh, but if you can't shoot threes, it seems to me you're not going to go to the NBA. If you watch a game like the Knicks and the Seventy Sixers yesterday. Everybody can shoot. Everybody can run. And then it comes down to strategy. And they've got some excellent coaches, of course, in those leagues. And they can change the the dynamics of that game pretty quickly. It is a high scoring, fan filled event that people like watching. And the bottom line is they can shoot. I think the bottom line with the Gators, both men and women, is they can't shoot, especially the women. There is no three-point shooter. Um, Fouls are always problematic, free throws. They're called free for a reason. So this giving a report on UF basketball, people are beginning to look beyond it, now to baseball, where supposedly there is a fantastic bunch of fellas coming in to play that game. Um, we'll see. That's also a very competitive league right now. And you have softball. It has always been competitive, has always been solid, but invariably comes down to who's the pitcher. Because a pitcher in softball can take you all the way, practically herself. If she can control the game with fantastic pitching, she's going to take your team a long way. And if you got just a slightly subpar pitcher, if you will, from the creme to creme, then you're going to have a little more problematic season. It's uh, the way it is. Of course, we've got some other sports which don't get looked at, lacrosse, soccer. And of course, we've got a fantastic track team, which will be gearing up for the uh, spring events here soon in Florida Relays. So there is something else coming along besides the basketball. I want to give you a report, though. As you know, I am very much an enthusiast for the women's basketball. I'm pulling for them. I hope they can do well and get on the map. But it's going to be very, very tough when you see how these other schools are doing. South Carolina, Ole Miss, Tennessee. So it's going to take a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of support, and some lineup of the stars, if you will, when it comes to uh, transfer portals and what is available there. In the world of professional sports, uh, we have politics and religion always seems to be an issue uh, among uh, the sports. One of the things that uh, you may not be a fan of, although we have a great team in Tampa, is hockey. Ivan Provorov, I think I'm gonna Provorov, Ivan Provorov got caught up in this issue of uh, American pluralism and American uh, politics. He's not from the country. He is a Russian Orthodox Christian. He's a professional hockey player. He's a defenseman for the Philadelphia Flyers. And he recently came under fire while refusing to wear a Pride Night jersey, which had the rainbow flag And he refused also to use a rainbow-taped hockey stick during warm-ups before the uh, team's game recently. Now, he told the reporters that he did not want to do that because he wanted to be true to himself and his religion. And then he tactfully said, I respect everyone else and I respect everyone's choices. But the Writers would not let that go. Uh, this dissent of his stirred, as you might imagine, uh, all kinds of uh, race, gender, sexuality-based uh, uh, criticism that one wonders why it's being crammed into sports and particularly hockey. Hockey is notoriously uh, international. Many of the players on the hockey teams come from different countries, much more so than, say, NBA basketball or NFL football. So he was not going to be able to escape uh, the fact that he had stirred all this dissent by refusing to uh, include the safety and inclusion of all the LGBTQ people. And he caught it for this. He doesn't respect everyone, one hockey commenter said. Um, the, another one said he ought not to be able to play in the game. Another one said he ought to get on a plane and go back to his country, uh, which, of course, would have been uh, Russia, I suppose, and get involved in Russia's war in Ukraine was another insult. So the question has become, it's been brought to my attention, so I thought I'd comment on it. I don't have an answer for it during Coach Hog's locker room. But what is the purpose of a professional sports franchise? Uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be uh, a social justice organization, okay? Uh, that, that, however, has worked its way into the sports world, and hockey did not escape it. If you take a look at the 76ers NBA game yesterday with the Knicks, you see all over the place uh, the uh, 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 people on the, on the bench wearing the Black History t-shirt, Black History Month t-shirt, and you know how controversial that is, particularly in the state of Florida, where um, Black History got uh, morphed into really politicalization, uh, critical race theory, and all that kind of business that DeSantis said has nothing to do with thinking. Uh, and it's bad thinking, and I said I think it's probably the C students trying to get an A in the class. But if you take a look at the LGBTQ thing in hockey, you have to ask yourself: Are there really that many gay fellas in hockey? Um, you know, there's always been a number of gay fellows in pro uh, football, but they kept, you know, they kept quiet about it. They didn't make a big deal about it. Uh, Dave Cope was the first one to write a book about it that I know. I knew Dave Cope pretty well. Um, he wrote The Confessions of Dave Cope, wherein he came out and talked about being uh, homosexual in the NFL. But he did that after he was finished in the NFL playing. And he didn't make a big deal out of it. He was uh, a pretty uh, uh, athletic male. I mean, I knew him from the beach on Fort Lauderdale. He was by far uh, one of the most striking Athletes on the bench, uh, on on the beach, a nice guy. Um, He'd gone to Notre Dame. uh, He'd been captain of the team, this, that one, and another. And um, that was where he finally landed as a a sexual identity. But he didn't try to cram it into the politicalization of the NFL. Whereas in this uh, Black History Month, if you do a little research of the NBA, 72% 72% of the NBA are, is, is minority guys. Um, they play the game. They play the game because the game is available to them as kids. Any kid in any ghetto or any neighborhood, and I used to do it all the time, can wander down to the playground, to the public court, and get in a pickup game. I did it for hours and hours and hours when I was a kid. It didn't matter who was there. We played with whoever came. And, buddy, we learned basketball. I learned I couldn't jump with the other guys, but I could shoot. And I became a very good shooter. I didn't miss free throws. I didn't miss my uh, jump shots. And I, uh, I could drive, but I didn't uh, belong under the basket with those big guys banging around. But I played with them on the playgrounds. And this is why I think the NBA is so full of fellows from the minorities. 72% of them. So does it follow, though, that the NBA should be politically uh, uh, commenting on um, the game and why shouldn't they stick to the game? I'm going to leave that to you to think about. uh, These teams are coming from big cities. Um, They don't come from um, any place but New York and Chicago and places like that. Forty-five percent of the viewers of the NBA are black. Um, And interestingly, on the teams – There's a 50-50% split among the centers. Uh, uh, Some of these centers, you know, have come from different countries. We actually have a center on the 76ers who played at The Rock, who is seven feet tall. Uh, Believe it or not, he played right here in Gainesville and then had two years at Kansas and then went to the NBA. Um, So when you see these Black History Month shirts, uh, on the players, on, on the Nixon, 76 ers now, alike in the NBA, you have to remember that about more than three, about three quarters of them came from, um, well, some people call it the hood. That's where that you can play. It's, it, it didn't cost any money to go down there. And you become very, very good at it. You'd have to buy any
0: equipment.
1: Uh, you, you really just go... And it's not like picking up a game of touch football, because touch football is not tackle football, whereas playground basketball is the same basketball you'll see in the NBA. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's a confusion that, of course, is, is uh, appropriately noticed, I think. Um, good question. I don't have an answer to it. I suspect, bottom line, it's all about money. It's all about viewership. But you can see you can cross a line. When Brittany Griner made these big protests about the United States of America and then unfortunately found herself a captive of a foreign country and dependent upon the United States of America to change her, uh, get her out, why that sort of resonated. However, uh, South Carolina girls team doesn't make any, uh, uh, doesn't hide the fact that they are, all in on um, a critical race theory and a black history and all that if I have my uh, 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 facts straight here. Let's, let's go to something that's a little bit more, well, it's not gender neutral, but it certainly is politically unencumbered. And that is, uh, in the Wall Street Journal here recently, there was a, an article that caught my eye, The Woman Who Rescued Patrick Mahomes' season. If you recall, Patrick Mahomes, who is biracial, but is nevertheless considered to be a minority, um, uh, had, had had a problem with his ankle and his last-minute game-winning drive in his AFC championship. And how did he get back on the field in a week became a kind of a moment of interest to, to uh, folks who were um, – uh, watching this game and like this player, he's an engaging young man, a very good player, and uh, you can see that uh, he is—he's uh, definitely uh, somebody that can can make that team move up and down the field and do a good job uh, of uh, of being competitive and difficult to defense. Um, who was the person? It becomes the point of this article. Who was behind? Patrick Mahomes' uh, success in getting back on the field. And lo and behold, it is an assistic, assistant, I thought this was an interesting story, an assistant athletic trainer named Julie Meyer. She is known as the person who put Mahomes through her rehab or his injured ankle back on the field. And he was able to play uh, against the Cincinnati Bengals and he was able to play practically at full speed. Uh, if you've ever been through rehab, or you've ever injured an ankle, you can know that you know that this is a difficult thing to deal with. But Mahomes went out of his way to praise Julie Frymire. Uh, here was a guy who has almost a half a billion dollar contract, and his whole contract is uh, on the line. If it had not been for Julie Frymire. Um, She is supposedly uh, the very best there is in terms of uh, her education. She has a Ph.D. uh, in physical therapy. Uh, She has collected data and studied since 2010 what it is that uh, makes the NFL go down to what it is about fluid consumption and sweating. First prototype of that, of course, was Dr. Cade. Uh, She's authored books. She's worked in collegiate sports. Uh, She was Princeton's head athletic trainer. And now she is uh, the person who put Patrick Mahomes uh, back on the field successfully within a week. Everybody who has ever had her her take care of him uh, says that she is simply the best. I wanted to talk about this because this is a this is a one of the positive stories about pro sports. There's no politics involved in this. Uh, she is a female. She's taking care of the men in the NFL. And the men could not get by without her helping them when they're hurt. She is a, a really something else. She Players say that she's encouraging when they get frustrated. and And she knows how to connect with them and keep them positive and keep them going through what she puts them through. Um, the players say she turns bad days into good days. I wanted to put this story out there for all you young ladies who are thinking about perhaps being physical therapists or being trainers. Uh, here is a good story about the importance of you in the whole system and basically that the system won't work without you. It says all sorts of things about the team, and it says it in an apolitical kind of way. So I like that a lot. Uh, The other thing I want to go over with you in uh, the funny, kind of a funny story here about the NFL is a story that I ran across that uh, has to do with, well, you can call it cheating, uh, but it's just looking for something that can give you an advantage that hasn't been caught as cheating yet. Uh, I thought that was pretty
0: interesting. You know, You can be ahead of the
1: game by thinking of something that they haven't got a rule against yet. And uh, the one that came to mind was something called Stick'em. I don't know if you remember Stick'em, but the guy who made Stick'em pretty famous and who caught a lot of flack for it, but he didn't have a rule against it, was a guy named Fred Belitnikoff, who went to FSU and then played for the Oakland Raiders. He put on his hands some kind of goo uh, that was uh, the color of butterscotch. It had a consistency of rubber cement. And he became so successful using it that it became commonplace in the 1970s in the NFL, especially in Oak in Oakland. Uh, it was the first time people had begun to see the one-handed catch and even the no-handed catches, um, if you will, somehow the stickum would be on his baby, his forearm, and the ball would get there, and then he could grab a hold of it. Uh, he introduced uh, uh, Lester Hayes, the cornerback from uh, from Oakland, to Stickum, and uh, Stickum used to drip from Lester Hayes. The the uh, the, the, the uh, article here says, like sap. Um, finally, there was so much Stickum that the NFL had to take action, and uh, the people playing the game had gone so far with it particularly Hayes, who had 13 interceptions in 1980, much of it he credited to stick them. Um, <laughs> There are other guys in football who've had rules named after him. Uh, there is Roy Williams' rule. Uh, a player may not tackle an opponent by grabbing him by the back collar or inside the shoulder pads. It's called the horse collar tackle. There's the Deacon Jones' rule. A player may not slap an opponent on the head. Uh, there's the Ricky Williams rule: a player may indeed tackle an opponent by the hair, and the <laughs> and the rule name for Lester Hayes, who said that without stickum he couldn't catch a cold in Antarctica. Um, <laughs> there's been Deflate Gate, and you know Deflate Gate was all about uh, 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 Tom Brady, the the Golden Boy. Uh, he was accused in that cold weather of deflating the football. So, um, who knows? I mean, there you go. Um, we, uh, (laughs) we had a football coach owner named uh, George Hallis one time who was Chicago players, a Bears player of the two. He was a master, not just of blocking and tackling, but of the edge giving trick. He was the owner Now get this who positioned his marching band by the opposing bench with orders to play whenever the other coach started to talk. He was the strategist who put itching powder in the opponent's uniforms, and he was the innovator to introduce the modern quarterback-centered offense, which from the start was nothing but faint, fake, and diversion. Um, trickery. George Hallis was an expert at it. Putting that band behind the players' bench um, also in nineteen seventy nine about uh, thereabouts there became something known as the tearaway jersey uh, as soon as a defensive back got his hands on Earl Campbell or Greg Pruitt uh, the jersey ripped apart, and you couldn't tackle him from the the tearaway jersey that was finally banned um. The intentional deflation of footballs with Deflategate uh, was, uh, you know, always a difficult thing to run down, but it became something that uh, everyone suspects gave the Patriots an edge. The Atlanta Falcons were fined in 2016 uh, for piping fake crowd noise into the arena to discombobulate visiting teams. Uh, there you go. And Doug Plank, the uh, was the Chicago Bears safety. He once described football as tackle chess. Um, he said the quarterbacks and coaches are so important because they are kings and queens and upsets are common because in chess, a clever strategy almost always beats an unimaginative assault. So <laughs> Fred McClit, a Mil- summed it all up. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. <laughs> Oh boy. There you go. Um we're going <laughs> I have another uh little brief analysis here for you um about the NFL passing game. Uh I know you have come to admire it as many players have because it's so precise and daring and successful when the team does it right. Uh there's a big analysis of this uh, that is probably you can google it and find it. It's pretty darn interesting. Uh, about how these routes work. Uh, before the play even starts, a receiver identifies what coverage the defender is using and then uh, influences the pass catcher's decisions. That's how he runs his route off of what he sees the coverage is. Uh, he studies the, the great receivers, study at least six hours of film per week. They know such things as which way the defender's leaning. Uh, that gives them just that split second face they need to get past them. And the most vital step for a receiver is his first one. Uh, the quarterback only has a millisecond to thread a pass, which is amazing. And the good ones are using it to a spot, throwing it to a spot. They're not throwing it to the open player. It's all about the receiver then. His op- his obligation is to create an open space. Um, and the line does as much as it can um, uh to give a, a, not much more than two and a half, most three seconds for the quarterback to deliver. Um, so um, it's it's a really interesting thing the way the routes are run down. Run now. Um, you'll see the um, receivers trying to knock the hands down of the defenders. Um, defenders uh, should be able to tell whether a route is meant to set up a 10-yard or a 35-yard catch, so they're reading back to the Uh, inclinations of the route runner. Um, This is a very difficult skill to master. Um, When you see this in in NFL, you're watching a high, high, rehearsed, -rehearsed, well-rehearsed, well-practiced art, really, uh, with receivers staying as low as they can before they break. Um, All involved in the physics and geometry of the matchup between the receiver and the defender. Um, the pass catchers have just a small advantage over the opponents, but a lot can go wrong with that. Uh, uh, whatever's going on in the line and how much time uh, those quarterbacks get to deliver their ball to the spot they think the receiver is going to be in. A lot of it is mind control and understanding the speed of the rap. That's one of the fascinating things about the NFL that has nothing to do with politics. And the trainer who put Mahomes back on the field has nothing to do with politics. We'll be right back on the Ward
0: Scott Files with the weather in just a moment. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy.
1: Can we touch him? No, thanks. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil.
0: Is there sound now Was something going on in your end? I'm looking at my chat line. Tell me if there's sound chat line. Okay. I've been saying no
1: audio, so I'm going to wait till I, okay, let me test with the audience now. Is there sound out there now? Just came on. Okay. Uh, Jim Murphy, that was on my end. That was not on my end, sir. In fact, um, um, that was in production, Jim. Let me just tell you, um, I was disappointed to see no sound because I have here, I'm speaking from, Plantation Mark, the new microphone. So if we're coming in line with Charlie now, tell me how it is. I'm looking at the chat line. I'm a little delayed from you, but I'm speaking from the new microphone. So I don't know why I was off there for a while, but what I was telling you, and the weather was how cold it was um, in the Mount Washington Observatory. I apologize. I didn't have anything to do with that. So let me keep me going. Yeah, keep me going. Now, you tell me how that sound is out there, my friends. Because um, this is a, thanks to Plantation Mark, this is an upgraded microphone. So I'll be what, doing good now. Okay, but tell me if you like it. Great. Okay, Mark, that's a great sound. Good. Should be a better sound. This is a compliment of Plantation Mark. This is our brand new upgraded sound. So uh, our buttons were all pushed on our end. Well, good. I'm glad you all said that and kept me going. So I'm getting into a story now. Thank you, Doug. Good to talk to you. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about something that the Gainesville Sunset
0: is trying to stir up trouble. They're trying to stir up trouble by criticizing the sheriff for the jail.
1: Now, let me just back up and tell you that there's always been an acrimonious relationship to my memory between the county commission and the sheriffs. And I'm going to give you a background story on this so that you
0: understand. When Sadie Darnell was the sheriff, the county commission did not like the way she spent the money they gave her. How she spends the money that they give her is her business. She's not a charter officer. She is a constitutional officer.
1: So the little bit of a strange relationship here and that the county supplies the money to the county sheriff, but the state allows the county sheriff to spend the money how the county sheriff best sees it. I've got a couple of law enforcement fellows watching this, so if I got this wrong,
0: let me know. But the way the Ward Scott files got started was the Relationship between the county commission, Cynthia Chestnut, Mike Barley, and and the sheriff was not a happy one. Let's put it that way. And so the sheriff came with her accountant, her staff, To explain to the county commission how the money was being spent, and the county commission made the sheriff wait, if
1: I remember correctly, now five hours during and you know these county commission meetings are just ang just filled with talk.
0: Five hours. And then when the sheriff came to the podium, finally,
1: Lee Pinkinson said, well, we've already made up our mind about your budget. And she says, well, how have you made up your mind? I haven't even been here to present
0: it yet. And then he stammered and stuttered. Lee Pinkison did. Whether vainly. Well, we've just. Well, come to find out. They would already made up their mind. What's been known as the meetings before the meetings. Out of this behavior. The way which. County commission treated. The sheriff.
1: We got Sue Barrett elected, and Cynthia Chestnut voted out of office. She got voted off of the County Commission because of that.
0: And a Republican replaced her. Unheard of in Olachwell County. So I'm saying this is how bad things can get. It seems the County Commission has never gotten along with the sheriffs. Now cometh before the County Commission. It's, The county commission is incredibly liberal, as you know. This woman who's chair now is about as liberal as they come. Some guy, unfortunately, meets
1: his demise in the jail. It is a jail, you know, natural causes. The sheriff instantly says, Hey, I'll have FDLE investigated. Maybe you'll trust what they find. I'm not going to investigate it myself. Because he knows what this county commission is like, what
0: county commissions have been like.
1: Let me give you a couple statistics, and this is, a, this is the, came out of Newsmax. It was sent to me by a member of our research team who is a uh, retired law enforcement. Great supporter of the show, by
0: the way. What is the crime rate in Alachua County? Now,
1: Len Kerbera has an excellent article in Alachua Chronicle okay. where he, he could think and he can analyze, pointed out that the data that Lonnie Scott presented about crime in the city is not very reliable data because it hasn't been figured the way a real statistician would figure it. The numbers are all skewed. The numbers want you to believe, oh, everything's hunky-dory.
0: But in Alachua County, the violent crime rate, according to the Newsmax
1: article, is nearly double that of the national average. And it has consistently increased since 2016.
0: Additionally, Alachua County and Gainesville Police Departments are both among those lacking
1: individual crime data, case closures, and other data for the most recent years through the
0: Florida Department of Law Enforcement. According to Newsmax,
1: not according to Lonnie Scott, by the way, the most recent data available from 2020 shows that Lodgeville County and Gainesville departments combined to close only 23% of the rape cases, 44% of robberies, and 52% of aggravated assault cases. So in Lodgeville County, not only are residents more likely to be a victim of crime, but the criminal is also more likely to get away with it. And the county is growing by about 12%. Percent each census period. And I suspect it's even more than that because of the exodus from New York. And you look at everything going on around here. Now, here is something that I've said before.
0: The sheriffs of this state don't have to run the jail. It's a county jail. And if the county commissioners don't like it, then let them run it. Let them get an administrator. Let them run it. In Newport Ritchie, according to the Tampa Times, Pasco County Sheriff Chris Nocco announced that he will do just that. At the new fiscal year, he's going to give the jail back to
1: the county, which in his case will mean 300 employees of the sheriff's office will become Pasco County employees. And the $50.3 million a county pays the sheriff to run the jail will remain in Pasco County's account. So let them take the money and run it, and let's see what happens. And let's see them point the finger themselves.
0: Now, the sheriff there in Pasco County
1: said this was a difficult decision. But the current employees will keep their current pay rank tenure position in the Florida retirement system.
0: But he said he needed more jail space. The county didn't give him the funds to build it. And that's always the case. The county, you know, it also participates in the contracts of people in that jail. The sheriff doesn't have autonomy over it. Furthermore, the Pasco County Sheriff says there's rapid growth in this county. Nobody's dealing with
1: this. He says in 2018, the Pasco Counties approved a bond issue that was supposed to raise $132 million for a jail expansion, but the expansion is not, not, not
0: taking place. On the other hand, on the contrary, there's financial shortfalls. Furthermore, the sheriff there says that the growing cost of contracts has only gotten worse. Furthermore, the rise in the price of gasoline cost this sheriff in Pasco County
1: about 30000 unbudgeted dollars a month. And the county does not have the reserves to cover that. So when you see this gas
0: at the pump, when you see this gas at the pump go up, it goes up for the county too, you know. So the sheriff there has sold officials. This budget is not reflecting the needs of the county. And he does not believe you should privatize the jail, but he does believe that Haskell County Commission should take over the jail. And perhaps then, as that county continues to grow and evolve, the county commission
1: will be closer to the actual problems themselves in corrections and public safety than they are when they can conveniently blame
0: it on the sheriffs. Now this article that was written by this Heather Bushman of Gainesville Sunset doesn't even begin to cover or focus on the proper types of issues. 100 vacant employees' positions in the jail. Okay, let the county fill them. 500 vacancies in Memphis, where you got a 2,100 uh, police force. 500. What is that? 25%? If the jail's understaffed, you don't blame it on the sheriff. And if the county's growing, you don't blame it on the sheriff. You don't blame it on Darnell. You don't blame it on Ulrich. Incredibly, this Heather Bushman even refers to the sheriff by his first name. Unbelievable. Cites three people who died in the jail. Incarcerated. Well, that statistic doesn't mean anything unless it's put into a context and you know, invest, you know, was it investigated? Was it resolved? So we have a lot of misinformation,
1: emotionally driven, aimed at law enforcement, everything from demilitarizing law enforcement to skewed data presented by the current GPD police chief, according to an analysis by an independent guy, Len Cabrera.
0: An elimination of the canine, yet when they wanted a canine, they
1: sure wanted the sheriff's canines. That ain't going to happen. You can't have it both ways, GPD. You can't say, well, we don't need canines. And all of a sudden, you have a need for a canine. You want to go get the sheriff's canine? What if the sheriff's canine in the city does something that liberal city commissioners don't like, then the sheriff is, is, is exposed. No. If the sheriff wants to dispense canines, let the sheriff
0: dispense canines for his needs, not for GPD's needs. You had a chance, you had your canines. We have a whole show on canines. This Prezia, Prezia,
1: whatever her name is, she's concerned about the level of stress people are undergoing if they're having to work lots of overtime. Where does she get this from?
0: She, level of if she, what Where does she get this from? she just make that crap up? Has she gone and talked? Where's the data that actually should be out of her mouth that supports this off-the-cuff statement? She's concerned about the level of stress. Are you kidding me? Do you have anything that we can understand besides your feelings? So I highly recommend that Sheriff give the jail back to the county. You know, I'm not the guy
1: who gives the orders, but I, I, I don't think, you know, enough is enough. If the liberals want to run down law enforcement, then let them run law enforcement. The sheriff is elected. The county sheriffs are elected. They're not appointed by the county commission. The chiefs are appointed by the city. So they're chicken. They can be fired by the city.
0: So they, they they're basically neutered. And they'll talk out of both sides of their mouth.
1: They want to keep their job. I know the guys. I can't figure out what Tony Jones does. I, 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 nobody has been able to tell me what he's now doing. Does anybody know? Does anybody know what the former chief, Tony Jones, is now doing, employed by the city of Gainesville? I mean, actually doing.
0: Meanwhile, we got a protest plan for the new president. So get over it, you know? And we got protests about the trustees at New College. Let me tell you about trustees and colleges. The governors appoint the trustees. When Jeb Bush became the governor of the
1: state of Florida, I think the number was 169 then, pretty close, I'm pretty close to right, 169 trustees of the community college system
0: were completely replaced by Governor Bush. Okay? So the trustees went from Being totally Democrat, totally Republican. With a snap of the finger. Now, how do you get to be a trustee? Well, you do something nice for the governor. That's basically what it is. You do something nice for the governor. Because... You believe in the
1: governor's mission or vision. And one of the things that the governor has control over is the vision of the education system,
0: which you see right now. Furthermore, get ready.
1: The Florida lawmaker is going to convene a two-week special session today to clarify the statewide prosecutor's authority to investigate election crimes. So get ready.
0: It's going to put teeth in that investigation process. They're not going to de-emphasize election integrity. They're going to reemphasize election integrity.
1: The regular 60-day legislative session will begin March 7th, but the special session uh, will already be going on, and, uh, and
0: it'll take this up. So, DeSantis is the governor. He was overwhelmingly elected to be the governor. People are flooding to Florida. Why? They like it. They like what's happening here. So put all this in context when you think about it. Don't be duped by the lousy writing in the Gainesville Sunset. Tim Martin, how's it sound? I see you checking in here with me. Uh, hopefully, you're getting a good, a good, uh, clear voice here. Thanks, Plantation Mark, for helping us out here.
1: We'll be back tomorrow. Have a great day, Warthog Command Center. Out.